Hey everyone, I'm Taylor, and this is Rediscipleship, a podcast exploring what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century. After years of following Jesus, I'm convinced that his invitation to the abundant life wasn't just a catchy slogan, but the true home for a weary traveler. On this podcast, we will seek to undo the discipleship of our culture, exposing the ways we've allowed and even participated in our own malformation. Being rediscipled in the way of Jesus is the lifelong invitation of the cross, but thankfully, you're not on the journey alone. Here we go. Hey there. Welcome to the follow-up Q&R to our conversation with Artie Kuhn. If you're listening to this, you've chosen to give some time from your life to engage with our conversation in hopes that it would help you think and live more as a disciple of Jesus. Hopefully you're hearing all of the time and priority language in that sentence. You know, you get it. That's the topic. We really appreciate you taking the time to engage with this. And if you haven't done so already, we'd really love if you'd take another minute to leave a quick review for us. Select some stars, write a comment. This would help us get some feedback on how this is being received and to know how to continue to serve you in your journey of discipleship to Jesus. In this episode, you're going to hear some responses to questions asked by students on our campus. And as a reminder, in the conversation, the voices are Sarah Smoke, who's our in-house moderator, producer, and editor, our guest, Artie Kuhn, who's a professor in the Emerging Technologies in Business and Design Department at Miami University, and me, Taylor Scott, who's the campus director of The Navigators, also at Miami University. So let's dive right in. So to start us off, I want to follow up on something you guys talked about in last episode about this idea of the design of people. Um, and how we are all designed for different things and as such, right, we need to be able to go with how we are designed and how the universe is designed. And one of the reasons maybe that love and desire, cultivation, or time and priority management is an issue for somebody is related to maybe they're not living into the design that Jesus has for them. So on like a really practical level, I know that this is a question I've had many times, so I imagine there's a lot of people thinking it too. How do we go about learning from the Lord what our individual design looks like? Mm. Good question. The first thing that comes to my mind, there's a great book by a guy named Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak that I would recommend. It's fairly short, actually, and um, which which is not the sole, sole gauge of whether a book is good or not. But for college students who are busy, it's a great book to start with. He says something about burnout that's always been really helpful for me. He said that burnout occurs not when you are giving too much of yourself, but when you're trying to give out of a place that you don't have. And I think that idea has been really helpful for me to think about um, th- this idea of burnout especially, but I think connecting to your your question about design, that there is a need to, um, as, as the title of his book says, to let your life speak and to uh, to spend time with God uh, in prayer scripture to understand, okay, God, how have you made me? And um, I think that this is where some of the quote unquote secular wisdom of our world is helpful, where personality tests like Myers-Briggs or things like the Enneagram can be helpful to give self-awareness. Um, uh, there, there's another little book called The Enneagram and the Way of Jesus that is also really helpful. I've benefited from that connects some of the conclusions of that 
kind of personality taste to um, how do we live more fully in the way of Jesus that I would recommend. So I think that it just takes asking questions. It takes self-discovery. It takes peers and friendships in your life that know you well and can speak to that. But those are maybe two resources that we could put up and um, offer too. I think it's also helpful to think about the word design. So like I mentioned, I'm a designer, right? And so uh, design is not, um, design is about solving a problem, right? And so a designer doesn't sit down and say, I want to, an artist sits down and says, I want to express myself. A designer sits down and says, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And so I think understanding your own unique, like Taylor's saying, like your own unique strengths and weaknesses, priorities, constraints, stuff you're good at, stuff you're not, um, I think is helpful. My wife also wrote an article a while back. Um, you can picture a Venn diagram um, of there's a, there's a sphere of what you're passionate about. There's a sphere of what you're good at and a sphere of what the world needs. Or I, as a pretty practical person, would say, would rename what the world needs to what the world will pay you for. And the intersection of those things, I think, is important to think about. So if you're passionate about something and you're good at it, but the world won't pay you, that's called a hobby, right? If you're, if you're passionate about something and the world will pay someone to do it, but you're not good at it, that means that you're like one of those embarrassing people at the beginning of American Idol, right? Like you really love to sing, but you're terrible at it, okay? But what you want to find is the intersection of those three things. And I would also say that we often tend to think of ourselves as static and we're not. And so the answer to that question, I think, changes over time. But just understanding what, where you are at at this season of life, um, thinking about those things kind of helps. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense, Sarah? Oh, it absolutely does. Um, and something I'll just throw in, because I think it's undergirding both of the comments you're making, is... Uh, I think discovering your design requires a lot of self-reflection and self-reflection is not necessarily something our culture has well-trained, at least my generation in. And most of the people listening to this are part of my generation. Right. Um, so I just want to throw that in for people too, that like, that's a skill you'll grow in and you'll get more comfortable understanding your own design as you grow in the skill of understanding yourself, but also the skill of understanding God and understanding how he has made all people, that is true of you, um, and also how he has made you uniquely, that is true of you. Yeah, I think I think it's worth reiterating something Taylor said, though, of the importance of others in that process. I think it's important to have people around you that want what's best for you, to be able to be speaking into that and encouraging those things. And I think that those people need to be from a variety of backgrounds. So if you're... if you know, I'm 42. If my friend group is only 40-year-olds, then I'm going to have some serious outages because they're, they're, there's blind spots that all me and my fellow Gen Xers all have, right? And so we need to have, we need to have other people in the room that don't have that blind spot, those blind spots, right? So I think that's the importance of, if you're a college student, being around people that are older, families, people that are professionals, you know, all the way up to gray hairs, I think is critical because... They're going to be able to see things in you and have perspectives on things that you can't see and that your peer group can't necessarily see because by their very nature, they can't see them. Right. So like I meet with a handful of dudes and like um, one of the other guys is about my age. Another is about 10 years younger than me. Another is about 15 years younger than me. Like I think it's it's helpful to have this variety of people 
because they can see things that you can't. Yeah, I appreciate that thought a lot. Um, another question that you'll have to pardon me. I might rephrase this question when I'm done because I'm trying to figure out what exactly I'm asking, unfortunately, while I'm asking it. Um, I know when I was a college student um, and from doing a lot with college students, and I would assume that you two probably run into this a lot too, that sometimes for college students, one of the things we that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting um, when we were having the discussion of like different kinds of capital in our lives during last episode was this idea of like in some seasons of life, one capital might be on fire and like whether or not that's the capital you want to pay all of your attention to for all of your life, it needs attention because it's on fire right now. Um, and I think one of the things that I see with college students a lot of times is that school feels like it's on fire. Um, and I'm really curious. I don't, I think the reason I'm not sure what I'm asking is because I'm not asking a specific question. I just kind of want to speak to that idea. Like, do you think it's true that school is really on fire in their lives? Do you think maybe that's a, a perspective thing? If school is on fire, like, how do we deal with a capital that's on fire? Like, where, where does that balance come in as a student? Well, I'm going to speak as uh, a person with experience, not as a professor, okay? Because what I'm going to say runs counter a little bit to what I'm supposed to say. And that is, uh, your GPA doesn't matter worth crap. It doesn't matter, at least in my world. I, like, no one's GPA is on their resume or whatever. Like, it does not matter, man. Like, if you want to go, if you're trying to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, you're going to pursue multiple years of higher learning beyond undergrad, then, yeah, you're in a different situation. But most people, it, that, that's not a fire, right? It's, it's only a fire if you pour fuel on it. Um, I think for most people... Um, do your best, work hard, and let let the chips fall. And also, I think it's useful. I do a lot of advising besides meeting with students, just kind of advising like academically. Grades are not a trophy that you win. Grades are a speedometer that you should check in on every once in a while. And so if if you're failing in some class or set of classes or struggling with this class or set of classes, that's a, that's a service engine soon light that comes on in your dash. It's not something you're supposed to accomplish. You don't need, you, the goal should not be to get the A in Calc 1, right? For many students, surviving Calc 1 is the goal, okay? But if you hate it and it's hard and it's not coming together, that that's a signal that maybe this isn't something you should be pursuing. Like maybe this isn't the major for you or the minor for you or whatever. Um, other times it's like, okay, you want to go be a computer science person. Great. You're going to have to get through calculus. And some of that's going to be very, very useful for your career. And some of it is just going to be kind of eh. And you're just going to have to suffer through calculus, right? And so that's going to have to be something you're going to have to grind out. And that, yeah, I know that runs counter to my fruit metaphor earlier. But, like, sometimes you're going to have to grind it out. But if you're in a lifestyle of grinding, that's a problem. Does that, does that address that at all, Sarah? And I think also related to that, the it's not a fire until you have fuel on it. I think it's also related to this inability to discern 
what we're going to decide to do. And like the root word for decide means to cut. And so that means sometimes to cut some things out, to say, okay, I can't be, I can't get a 4.0 GPA and be a star athlete and have this and have that. Like you got to decide and, and cut and be realistic as to what is doable for you. Does that, that I also add to this. Okay. Sorry. I know I'm totally rambling, but I'm going to add some other, I have a lot of thoughts about this particular No, this topic. is good. This is really good. Um, okay. Um, there's a lie out there that has permeated our society. And I think it, it, we got to call it what it is, which is a lie. And the lie is that college is the best four years of your life. I'm sorry that they're not like, they're not, I had a good college experience. It was fine. So depending on if you had a great college experience or an awful one, I can tell you like, it's, it ain't, it, it's not, it's not that right. And and so to try, I think that part of why people feel so stressed in college is they're trying to extract like a mine, like they're trying to get gold out of a mine, like they're trying to extract from this experience every single bit of resources. And that runs counter to the way of Jesus, which is more like farming than mining, right? Where it's like, it's cultivating things rather than extracting things. And so if we're trying to extract the perfect Friday night or we're trying to extract the perfect spring break or the perfect GPA or the perfect relationship with a professor or the perfect relationship with a friend or the perfect whatever, then, then yeah, obviously if that's your goal, that's how it's going to feel all the time. And so I can't sit there and say, don't feel that way. Instead, I would just say like, maybe you should rethink whether or not that's really how you want to be doing this thing for this three, four, five, six year like season of life mm. is that man dude that that, that uh, comparison of analogy between uh mining and the harvest kind of agricultural metaphors that jesus uses all the time that is uh, i'm like feeling really struck by that because like in the mining metaphor there is there's like there's value and stuff that i need to go and find and so like logically it follows the harder that i work and the more efficient and more optimized my work is, the more value and good I will get in this yes. span of time. And there's a finite amount. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a finite amount of gold in them, their hills. And yeah. so I got to yeah, like, <laughs> throw elbows to get in front of the next guy in there yeah. to get the gold. Right. But man, how often does Jesus use like, okay, um, the sewing kind of uh, language and metaphors. And that's and that's beyond just, just Jesus too. Paul is using that language too about what are you sowing into your life, into the world. Like that is uh, profound, man. Yeah, so thinking, so encouraging college students to say like, this is a time if what they maybe, I think this is where for me it's really going off is that for students, if they think, it goes back to what I was saying in the first episode, there's a way that the world works and we have to acknowledge that. And so the way that Jesus says the world works is you will sow things into your life. And they will you will then, because of that, reap certain things, attitude, characters, habits, um, experiences from your life based on what you sow. If you're living under the lie that like this college experience is of mine and I got to get the gold that I can at the expense of whatever – you think that you're moving towards something that's really good. What I think the 
Jesus would say is you're actually sowing terrible habits of of maybe self selfishness of um in of efficiency in a world that's not meant to be efficient like of of prioritizing all of the wrong things and so where you think that you're actually pursuing a way of life that's going to work later on you're actually sowing the seeds of um of selfishness and um capitalism or um striving for success by the world standards versus the kingdom standards all sorts of things that are really counter to jesus's kingdom like dang that's like i don't know my brain's exploding a little bit by that metaphor and some of these things are not but they're not by their nature counter to the way of jesus right necessarily it's just when they're in the wrong place right when they have the wrong priorities when when they just get too big bigger I mean, like the definition of cancer is a thing that's bigger than it's supposed to be right it metastasizes beyond what it's supposed to be and so it's like i think like same thing like as long as things are in the right place working in the right order then it gets a heck of a lot easier and it's more like jesus which is nice when those two things line up i'm going to jump in here with my last question from me based on this conversation before going to our student questions that I think is a underlying thing to a lot of what we're discussing. How do we learn to say no? Hmm. Uh, practice. <laughs> it's the same way we learn to say no. It's the same way we learn everything is to say no, right? Or is to practice. So like my kids learn in tennis right now. And at first it was like, okay, I couldn't even hit the ball. Then hit the ball and every single time it, was, it went all kinds of wackadoodle angles. And then over time, okay, now it's landing where it's supposed to. Okay, now start intentionally driving that ball to where you want it to go, right? It's just the same thing. I think uh, we all, you just need to get reps in. You just got to practice. And so start with really simple things like, uh, no, I don't want pepperoni on my pizza. I want, I don't know, anchovies or whatever. Like, I think saying no, I I think that no is something that you just got to build up to. And so eventually you'll be able to say no at these bigger things, but I think you really just need to get confidence and strength and being able to say no, being saying no to the right things. You know, um, sometimes saying no, you're saying no to something awesome. That's great. That's just, you're like, this is not it right now. Um, that kind of thing. I think also being able to say no for me, Taylor alluded to this. I identify as a Enneagram seven. And so for me saying no is like the opposite of what I, I want to say yes to all the things. At the same time, I don't want to commit to any of them, but I want to say yes to all the things, right? And so for me to have a very realistic sense of what I can, what I have capacity for enables me to say yes or no, right? So same thing, like if you don't have a sense of how much money is in your bank account, you can't say yes or no to buying the new car, or you can, may not be able to say yes or no to going out for pizza, right? And so... Same thing. If you're not keeping an eye on your res- on your capacity, then you have no true sense of yes or no. And so, like, I think this kind of gets into kind of the super practical level stuff. But like, honestly, calendar, calendar, calendar. Like, if you don't have, if you're not leveraging a calendar and know what you're committed to and when there's a commitment, then you can't possibly say yes or no. Like, because you don't know, and so you'll just default to whatever is your default. And for most people, that's making somebody else happy, which means I'm going to say yes to all the requests or saying yes to all the fun things instead of realizing like, 
I only have so much capacity, so I can't say yes to all the things. Um, is that helpful, Sarah? So I'd say it's kind of two things. One is get practice, and two is have a really realistic sense of what you can say yes or no to. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add the thought here that um, for me, one of the things I really had to learn was I'm not only saying no when I say no. I'm saying yes to something else, something that I've chosen is going to be a priority in my life. And my saying no is enforcing a boundary that I have created proactively in order to be able to say yes to the things I'm choosing to want to say yes to. Um, And I think that was a really helpful perspective shift on like what saying no actually was for me to get past that first hump of like, but it's scary to say no to anything. So I just wanted to throw that in too. It's also, I think it's also related to build on that. I think it's also related to like a desire that we need to cultivate, which is to not just live in habit mode and just kind of like automated mode, right? So like, I'll tell you a story. There's many times when I first learned to drive. And when you think about it, you first learned to drive, you're like 16, 17 years old. And so that means you go to school all the time and you're going to school at some God awful time, right? Like you're going at five, you're getting up at crack, the butt crack of dawn and it's just awful. Right. And so many times I just drive to school, drive to school, drive to school. It's just automatic. I could, I would be in second period without even realizing like, how did I even get here? Like, I don't remember any of that. Right. But like, I also (laughs) caught myself multiple times on like a Saturday when I'm supposed to go hang out with my buddy driving to school because it was just like this automated thing. And I told this story to other people and they nod. They're like, yeah, that's happened to me. And I think that that's a metaphor for how we often, when it comes to this yes, no decision-making thing, is that we're just in automation mode and we're just doing the the habitual thing instead of actually stopping and thinking, can I say yes to this right now? And being really kind of living out of intention instead of just um, dropping into the, the path that I've already worn down. Does that, does that make sense? I've, I've heard it described that, um, that, that habits and how our brain works is an awful, like a field where this big old field and a deer runs through it once and makes a trail and then deer runs through it again and it creates a different trail. And the third time it might run into that first trail again. And if you do that enough times, eventually one of the trails will get worn down. And so that's the easy, cause it's the passive least resistance. I think our brains are the same way. When we say yes to too many things for too long, we now lock into that easy to fall into path of saying yes. And then you wake up similar to me driving. You wake up three hours later, like what in the world? Why? I never agreed to this. Like, why did I say yes to this? Um, same thing. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's a really long way of saying right on Sarah. No, you're good. <laughs> um, right on. And you're entirely right. As someone with a psych degree, you had to take some neural classes. That's literally what neuro classes. That's literally what neural pruning is. So you're entirely right. Got it. Um, okay. It's, it's fields and deer all the way down. Okay. Got it. Well, thanks. Uh, the next question I think really starts to straddle the line of some of the things that our students are growing to see as a needed priority in their life. Um, and asking some real questions about like, how do we do this? So this question focuses around the idea of rest. Um, And I'm actually asking kind of two questions in one, so answer this as you see fit. How do I know the difference between rest and laziness? And when do I know when it's the time to work versus the time to rest? I think the fact that you're asking questions about rest is a very countercultural and good sign. So I know I'm not directly answering the question, but I think just 
recognizing that rest is a thing that needs to be in your life at minimum one-seventh of your days needs to be a day of rest, right? Um, then that's really good if you're asking that. Now, the question of rest versus laziness, um, I think that it, it comes down to intention. Um, and so I, I think you know when you're being rest, when you're feeling rested and when you're being lazy. Like when you're lazy, you walk away and you're like, that wasn't really, I feel kind of icky after that. It's the same feeling you have after you eat McDonald's. Like that's just, <laughs> that's just, that's what rest feels like, right? Like this kind of gross, I'm kind of, my pores are greasy type of feeling like out of laziness, but rest is different. Rest feels rejuvenating and, and ready. Um, you know, the, the word recreation has recreation inside of it. And so I think we need to recreate. And that's what I think rest really is about, right? Is like recreating, like recreating who we are and returning to what we value and all of that kind of stuff versus laziness comes out of burnout and comes out of being overtaxed and overspent. And uh, rest is a different thing. Does that? I also think like, stop, ju don't judge yourself too much. Like if you're, you're asking this question, you're probably also tearing yourself down. Like, was that, does that fall in the rest category or does that fall in the lazy category? And it's like, oh, man, it's okay. Right? Like there's grace here. There's forgiveness here. It's okay. Um, yeah. Would you add, what would you add to that Taylor? Well, I was just thinking that I, um, I don't think it's insignificant that God, you know, took one of the 10 commands, uh, first commands that he gave to Israel to focus on rest. And that, that seems to indicate, <clears throat> uh, along with our propensity to covet, along with our propensity towards anger, um, towards idolatry, we have a propensity as, as broken, fallen human beings to not rest and to not stop. Um, and that's, the, the concept of like Sabbath or um, Shabbat in, in Jewish culture, like the essence of that is a stopping that happens that it's um, that we just stop our work. And we, I think I, I feel that is a hard thing to do for me. I don't know if that's specifically American. I don't know if that's just Western or if that's human. Um, but at some level, I know I experienced that. And so for God, I think in his love and grace, as you're saying already to say, you really need to stop like at least one in seven. Like it has to be at least that, um, that I, you know, to, to work that in, um, as a command to his people is important and that Jesus does not dismiss that, but says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Like there's a continuation of the need for that. Like that this idea of Sabbath and stopping our work, um, <clears throat> It, it wasn't given as just a regulation for humans to obey. It was given as a gift for us to enjoy. And I think that that um, we, we really need to spend time thinking about the gift of, of Sabbath. Um, I think that it's, as I've heard teaching and, and, and looked at that, I would just offer to students or those listening that if you are desiring to rest well, you need to think intentionally about the work that needs to be stopped. And I've heard people just say, you need to spend 24 hours not being productive, like not producing something from your life, um, which I think does go counter to our culture and the idea of being efficient and optimizing and 
you know, I'm going to uh, listen to the summary of the chapter on the, while I'm on the treadmill also, and maybe journal about it afterwards. And I'll try to put a blog post up later too. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm going to stop optimizing for a day. I'm going to stop trying to produce from my life and, um, and intentionally stop those things. Um, Tim Keller has a fantastic sermon about this that we can try to link to as well. Um, but he, he encourages people to try to then engaging things that are avocational. So, you know, the guy who, um, who is a fisherman for his job doesn't go fishing on a day off. And, um, and the woman who is, um, reading and researching for her job is, is not going to spend her rest day reading (laughs) or researching something, you know, like find something that is counter avocational and do that for rest. I find a lot of my job is, is both relational and kind of intellectual focused. Like I'm not generally constructing physical items for my job. And so for me on a day off, I want to be in our garden. Uh, I want to help our, our boys build a tree fort. I want to go for a run. Like I want to do physical things like that. I find for me are very restful uh, because I think it's partly counter to the job that I'm normally doing for my work. And so I think for me, that idea of rest, um, it, it, it does feel challenging and it does, I, I think it does, um, that's to be an undoing of some of our cultural narrative of that. I always have to be productive. I always have to be efficient. And I, I think if we're living under the good, easy yoke of Jesus, we have to come to that day saying, Jesus, I need your help to bear your easy yoke. And part of that is resting for a day. Would you help me do that? Um, I think that we have to come with that kind of attitude into the time. Otherwise, it's, it's honestly, I think it'd be really hard. And I think we should spend some capital on rest too, right? Yes. So don't feel bad saying, I want to learn how to skateboard. Is it okay if I go pay for a skateboard? Like, that's okay, right? Or like, gosh, I'm speaking to two navigators, so I feel bad about this. I'm about to think that they say I've been taught never to do, which is, allude to a verse and not know where it is and butcher it as I repeat it. But um, <laughs> like, like the ancient Israelites were, were ordered to pay their tithe, right? So 10% of their first income goes into the system in order to support the whole religious system and their, and to provide a social safety net. Like that was the first, that was the 10%. That's what that's for. But they were ordered at least once a year to not do that. But instead, take the money and spend it on a big old party that literally says like the fattest meats and the nicest wine and have a big old party. And I think that that's like tied into this idea that it that, that ours is not this monastic lifestyle where you just have the bare minimum like a Jedi. Like instead, it's it's this rich tapestry that has lots of stuff going on and it's okay to spend resources, be it financial, intellectual, all the stuff to spend resources on rest. Cause it's that important. Like Taylor said, it's supposed to be one seventh of your days and it's in the top 10 list of things to do. Um, and so like, it's pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. I totally think talking about rest and Sabbath could be an hours long conversation on its own. Um, I'm super passionate about both of these topics, actually. So I'm just going to tie in one last thing with this, since 
I think most of our people listening to this don't have this perspective, but I know there are people that do. Almost everything, not everything, but almost everything we've been talking about so far has been in reference to, like, ancient Israel and things like that, and there are going to be people who are like, but how does that apply to Christians, right? And so a a thought that I want to offer um, is the idea that I think rest is one of the best ways we witness Jesus to an unbelieving world. Um, Because, and, and some of this is based out of ancient Israel, right? Like one of the Bible teachers that we learned from in my internship program talks about how circumcision might be the sign of the covenant, but in the ancient Near East, the ancient Israelites weren't the only ones who practiced circumcision. Whereas in the ancient Near East, the Israelites were the only ones who practiced Sabbath. And like that was kind of the biggest sign to the outward community that something was different here. Um, I would argue that in an American culture that so highly values productivity and, you know, has this belief that rest is earned as opposed to the biblical understanding that rest is a gift and different things like that, that that's still true today. Um, I think one of the best ways we witness Jesus to our culture is by resting well and having a priority for rest. So I'm just going to add that thought in too. Totally. Awesome. Um, So what about on the very practical application side? What suggestions do you guys have about how to practically apply some of what we've talked about these past couple episodes to our lives? What are even some like first steps we could take in either the more practical time priority management side of things or the more heart work, love, desire, cultivation side of things? Either one. Taylor, I'll let you handle the heart one because that seems to be where you're more well-versed than I. I, I, on the tactical side, I, I said this before, but I'll say it again, like calendar, calendar, calendar. Like if you got to have a calendar, put the things on it. You should not be remembering that you have Ecom 102 at Tuesday at 10.05. Like that is a wa- that is wasted space. You should be offshoring that out of your brain into a calendar app. Like do not keep it in there. Like get it out. Related to that, like I like this phrase ubiquitous capture, which is from like the um, like, uh, the getting things done boom of 15 years ago or so. But like this idea of ubiquitous capture is like all the time, if there's something you need to be able to remember, you should be able to get that out of your brain all the time, you know? So, um, it could be, I carry a piece of paper around with me and every time I got to remember that I need to get more trash bags or whatever, I write it down and that becomes my place where those things go. But I think that should also have, we all have supercomputers in our pockets. And so why not use them to do that? Right. So, like super tangible first step, get a freaking calendar app, use the free one, pay for it, whatever. Great. Calendars in my mind are not places where tasks go. Calendars are for commitments. So calendar is where the commitment to other people, to myself and tasks are something different. Right. And so I would on my calendar, I'll look at my calendar. I'm going to literally look at my calendar. This is a little embarrassing. All right. So I had class that I had earlier this morning that I taught. Then I have Navigator's podcast recording. That's right now. And then I have a, on my calendar is a commitment to a meeting that I have. And then I have some calls in the evening and then some open spaces and blah, blah, blah. So I would say like calendars are for commitments to other people and to yourself. I've gone so far when my life gets really wild when it comes to busyness, like for a season, again, not for a lifestyle, but for a season, it gets really busy. Like I've lit my buddy, Ben makes fun of me because he saw this on my calendar one time. I literally will book, will put sleep on my calendar where it's just like, okay, here's where the sleep is going. Um, and so I think you got to calendars for that. 
Um, tasks go someplace else. So that could be a reminders app or whatever. I have a really fancy um, artisanal task tracking app that I use called OmniFocus. That's way too much money and it does all the things. But that's because, you know, I'm a seven. I want to try all the things. That Dude, that's the next level. I looked at OmniFocus for a while too, man. And you're... I, I'm giving you all the props for using that thing, man. It's got, it's, it's robust. It's sci-fi. But just put the stuff on the list. Like just put the stuff, get it out of your head. It doesn't belong in your head. Get it out of there. Make a list. Um, yeah, I have an app that's just called Checklist and it's great. Um, I want to throw in a thought here really, really quickly though, just because we did spend an entire podcast episode talking about technology. And so I know there's going to be people who are listening to this who are like actively trying to maybe move away from using tech for things like all of this. I think the point that you're making is still very practical and very applicable to everybody. And I'm just going to give a quick example of like how that's true. I've been one of those people who I actually do keep a lot of stuff on my phone still, but for my like week to week stuff, it's gone physical because that way I don't get distracted looking at my technology while I'm just trying to figure out, well, what's on my task list or like what's next on my calendar. Um, and so on either side of my office, uh, one side has a bulletin board that has my weekly schedule on it that I just set aside some time in it once a week to move my little push pins around that have all of my things that tell me these are the commitments for this week. Um, and the other side of my office has a whiteboard that has my to-do list on it. And that to-do list is organized into my personal ones are, are administration work, prep work, personal things, and people I need to communicate with. I have a list of people that's like, I owe them communication. Um, so just to say, like, there are physical ways to do this too. You don't have to do it on technology. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is the only thing that's wrong is to keep it in your head. Yeah. Mm. Any, any other solution, you could be drawn in sand. I don't care. Just not in your head is the answer. And then thinking about once you have that out of there, where you like, this is the reality of my schedule. This is the reality of my tasks then you can, I think, make it easier to say no to things where you say, like, I have my task list is too long. No. My time, sorry, I'm busy at that time. No. Um, and then also thinking about, like, financial, intellectual, physical, relational, the stuff we talked, or spiritual, the stuff we talked about before is, like, okay, when you look at your calendar and your task list, do you see things that reflect those values? Because, again, values are only things that you spend time or money on. And if it's not something you're spending time on, then it might not be something that you actually value. And so if you really do want to value it, get it in there um, is what I would say. But you can't do that unless you have it. Great transition to Taylor. What about practical steps in the like love and desire cultivation side of things? Yeah. Um, so I, there's a book that I read a while ago called Living Forward by Michael Hyatt and Daniel Harkby. Um, that was helpful to think through these things. Um, it's, it kind of outlines a little process of, of, as I said, like living forward, thinking about, uh, your life and priorities and time now in the context of where do you want your life to end up and kind of end. Um, so thinking about the first exercise you do is you start, uh, writing a eulogy for yourself and, and thinking about what will people reflect on about you or what would you want people to reflect on about you, about your character, about your relationships, about the things that you accomplished. But I think that that's for a lot of people, probably less the priority than the type of person you were and the kind of relationships you had, the type of life that you led, you know? Um, and so starting with that and then thinking specifically about the relationships in my life now and how I would want to be remembered in those relationships, 
that I think, um, again, it, for me, it's about reframing the way that I think about how I spend my time and about mapping out my priorities to think about, okay, this isn't just the things that my life is accomplishing as a, you know, a body of flesh in this world and the things that I can create or destroy or whatever build while I'm here, but it's about the type of person that I am. It's about the character of life that I have. It's about the soul, about the heart, about the spirit that I am bringing into the world by God's grace and the person I'm being transformed to become here. And so that that book was helpful to think through a lot of those things. And it gives some practical outlings of, of that. So I think cultivating some of that, again, it, it takes time. Um, for me, practically, like I have, I, I was doing digital things. Um, I still have a digital calendar because it's free. Why not? Um, but as far as to do lists for me, I went to a, um, a, a journal like, um, and this is a cheap one that I got, but, um, I, I practice my own version, I guess, of bullet journaling that incorporates both a to-do list and helping to track those things, as well as I set aside pages to actually journal. Cause that's a habit that is counter to my natural bent. But I, I have found like in the vein of self-reflection and awareness is something that's really helpful for me and something I need to do if I'm going to cultivate um, and, and allow Jesus to cultivate the type of person that I think I need to become. Um, and so that, because that's um, setting aside pages, even just in a physical place here, like I'm trying to put that as a value, as a priority for the time that I would give to that. So um, yeah, I totally agree with what Artie's saying. Like you have to have something, you need to get out of your head. I, I agree with all of the, um, uh, the kind of getting things done kind of phenomenon and stuff. That's, that was really helpful too. And, um, outlining some of that stuff. Another, one other thing, uh, a resource by Kevin DeYoung is this book, crazy busy. That's very short. Actually, it, the subtitle is a mercifully short book about a really big problem. Um, and it again is, is talking about busyness. It was published in 2013. Um, it's a little old, but I think still super relevant and it gets, into that idea of how busyness affects us as a culture, as individuals, and then how do we kind of move towards uh, Jesus and his kingdom as a way to counter that. So that was a super helpful practical book as well. I think some of this stuff too is helpful to think about at a tangible practical level is there's a lot of things that will bring my heart down. Like if I'm trying to cultivate something good, and, but I got to do anyway, that has to, that has to happen. And so those are the types of things that I'm going to be looking for that I can delegate or I can like I can delegate to other people. I can delegate to a system or software whenever possible. Like, for instance, I hate paying bills. It was a good practice for me to pay bills for a while because it forced me to pay attention to my finances. But now that I'm, I kind of got that taken care of, I, I hate paying bills. And so that's all automated. Like... It's auto deduct all the things, take all the things from all the things like, please, I never want to see that again. And so like, or delegate to other people or to like, like getting things done as a system where you can delegate these things into the system for later or delegate to software, like just, just get it off of you out into these different places and different things. So you don't have to keep track of all of it. I would say, and, and we're, you know, if people are listening to this, we're like the faceless voices in your ears right now that are telling you some things that have been helpful for us. But I think a practice that that um, anybody can take is find somebody in your life that you see doing time priority management well, that like loves people well, that loves God well, and is is not just like 
running around like their pants are on fire and then ask them to like look at your calendar to to look at your to-do list and to give you feedback on those things to like actually have a conversation with a real person I think a value of this podcast, in my opinion, is that you're able to hear how people are processing and thinking about and conversing around these different topics. But what would be an even better step than just listening to this would be to find somebody in your life that you personally can have that conversation with and then to be able to to dialogue with them about what it is actually looking like on the ground in your life too, um, to have the discipleship in time priority management and love and desire management. Awesome. Um, the resources that have already been referenced over the course of these two episodes for our listeners, uh, they'll be able to be found in a list on our website, um, under our podcast tab under the resources. I actually think is where it is as resources podcast. Um, but I want to pause for a second and just ask, are there any other resources that you guys haven't referenced yet that you would want to offer in addition to the ones already referenced in this conversation? I'm seeing head shakes. Nope, sorry. Cool. Got all the ideas out. No, that's awesome. I mean, I got specific software. Like, I love day one for journaling, and I use an app called Streaks to keep track of habits and blah, 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 blah. But, like, people will find that. And the, I think the important thing is is that you get it out of your head. And then, then you can see it, and you can think soberly about it. Because when it's just up here in your gray matter, it's – you can't. So. Yeah. Fair. I'll offer one other book that's been helpful for me personally, especially over the course of this last year. Um, the book is called Finding God's Life for My Will by Mike Donahue. It's a really approachable book, really easy to read and well-written in that sense. Um, but the whole purpose of the book, the whole overarching point of it is maybe understanding like what God's will for your life, quote unquote, is really isn't about seeking out the specific thing. Maybe it's really about understanding what it means for God's presence to be the plan. And while that doesn't necessarily sound like it has a lot to do with time and priority management, what I'll say is, as I've been listening to the conversations we've been having over these two podcast episodes, multiple times, like quotes and different chapters and different things from that book popped into my head. So the fact that it's come up in my brain like five or six times while we've been talking makes me go, maybe that would be helpful for somebody else too. Yeah, definitely. Great. Great. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Artie. We've really appreciated having you on the podcast. Thanks, Artie. It's good to be here. You guys are awesome. Keep on doing great things. If you want to find links to any of the resources mentioned in this episode, as well as a few other tools, check out our website, miaminavs.org. If you're struggling to figure out where to start applying some of the ideas that came out of this conversation, I would encourage you to choose one of these options to try this week. First, Schedule a time to chat with someone that you think manages their time and their priorities in line with Jesus and his kingdom. Namely, they love God and they love others. They do it consistently, they do it intentionally, and they do it on purpose. And just chat with them about how their life has become what it is now. Or two, practice saying no to one thing every day for one week. Maybe that seems like a lot. Maybe that doesn't seem like enough, but make it a conscious choice. And it doesn't matter if it's something that's big or something that's small. Make the choice to say no and express your boundaries. We're just talking about practice. Thanks to Sarah Smoke for editing and producing Rediscipleship, and thanks to all the students who submitted questions. They were really great. We are with you in the journey of Rediscipleship to Jesus. Jesus.